This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate featuring readings by some of today's best writers. At the age of only 31, Karen Russell has already established herself as a star in the American fiction world. Her first novel, The Quirky Swamplandia, was a finalist for the 2012 Pulitzer Prize, and her new collection of short stories, Vampires in the Lemon Grove, is winning raves from both critics and readers. Russell recently read from the new collection at Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., and answered questions from an enthusiastic audience. Here's Karen Russell. Thank you guys so much for coming. It's just a pleasure to get to be a Politics and Prose. Uh, it's a fabulous store, and um, every writer I admire has been through here, so it's like a cool treehouse club to get to be a part of. And um, so exciting to see you all. I, uh, I'm going to be reading from Vampires in the Lemon Grove. I think my goal seems to be, unconsciously, to devise book titles that I myself can't say without shame <laughs> to strangers. Um, this is my third go-around with a book title that I can't tell people except in like a downcast whisper. Um, and my big joke now, my sister's like, just call the next one Seahorses and Hats, you know? <laughs> just be like, there's a goddamn seahorse and a hat. <laughs> Weirdly, it has no mom, you know? <laughs> um, so, yeah, I was going to read, you know, it's always tricky because I write, I tend to write the most awkward length of a story, the long, short story, which is like the gawky pubescent. It's like not quite a novella, and it's not short enough to get to the end of in a reading. Um, but let's try to make lemonade out of that, and I'll just, I'll find a, a literary cliffhanger, and then I'll just stop, and everyone will feel a pleasant dissatisfaction. I hope, and then, <laughs> and then, and then I'll, I'll take questions. This is also a little scary because I, you know, we're recording it for Slate. So if you want to lob me like a softball question, and not one about the Middle East, I'd appreciate that. <laughs> Let's, you know, that's always the fear that you're going to end your career with, <laughs> you know, going to a fugue and just rave on, um, or develop Tourette's or something. Uh, this was originally published in Zoetrope, which is this fantastic journal that Francis Ford Coppola started. Um, and it was called, it was for their horror issue. So I was very excited because I had been working on all these stories about monstrous metamorphoses. And they contacted me and asked me if I had any horror stories in the hopper. And I was like, they're all horror stories, <laughs> even the love stories. Um, so this is set during, um, during the 1800s in Nebraska on the frontier. And I was uh, researching this novel set during the Dust Bowl drought, and I ran into this couple who told me about a community they knew where these Mennonites shared a single glass window because in order to prove up um, or get the title to your land, there were some sort of you know straightforward requirements. You had to have this many acres in wheat. You had to be there for you know X amount of years, and you had to build a structure you know, to specific dimensions that had a glass window. And glass was such a luxury commodity out there. It was rarer than rain. And so they had this one, anytime the inspector came, they would say, hey, bud, I need to borrow your window. And some kid would ride it over. And they would just, I sort of love that idea of that, that kind of community that's formed by this shared object. And I was also thinking about some of the pressures put on these homesteaders that might make that really fragile, tenuous community shatter. So blah, blah, blah. Sorry, guys. This is uh, proving up. Go tack up, Miles, says Mr. Johannes Zegner of the Blue Sank Zegners, pioneer of the tall grass prairie, 
and future owner of 160 acres of Nebraska. In most weathers, I am permitted to call him Pa. See if your mother's got the window ready. The inspector is coming tonight. He's already on the train. Can you imagine? A thrill moves in me. If I had a tail, I would shake it. So I will have to leave within the hour and ride quickly. Because if the one-eyed inspector really is getting off at the spur line in Beatrice, he'll hire a stagecoach and be halfway to the Hawks River settlement by one o'clock. He could be at our farm by nightfall. I think Jesus himself would cause less of a stir stepping off that train. He'd find a tough bunch to impress in this droughty place with no water anywhere for him to walk on. Miles, listen fast, Pa continues. Your brother is coming. And sure enough, Peter is galumphing toward us through the puddled glow of the winter wheat. It came in too sparse this year to make a crop, wisping out of the sod like the thin blonde hairs on Pa's hand. My father has the settler's scar, a pink star scored into the brown leather of his palm by the handle of the moldboard plow. Pete's got one, too, a raw brand behind his knuckles that never heals, and so will I when I prove up as a man. As yet, I am the Zegner runt, with eleven years to my name and only five of those west. I cannot grow a beard any quicker than Mr. Johannes can conjure wheat, but I can ride." Pa kneels low and clasps his dirt-colored hands onto my shoulder. Your brother is coming, but it's you I want to send to our neighbors in need. Boy, it's you. I trust you on a horse. I know you'll tend to that window as if it were your own life. I will, sir. I just got word from Bud Stixel. You got two stops. The inspector is making two visits. The florissants and then the Stixels. Let's pray he keeps to that schedule anyhow, because if he decides to go to the Stixels first, I shiver and nod, imagining the Stixels' stricken faces in their hole. The Stixels don't have one shard of glass. You cannot fail them, Miles. I know, Pa. And once they prove up, you know what to do. Yes, Pa. This time I will. You take the window back. Bundle it in burlap. Get Bud's wife to help. Then you push that inspector's toes into stirrups, do unto others, Miles, and you bring that man to our door. But what if the inspector sees me reclaiming the window from Bud? He'll know how we fooled him. Won't he cancel their title? Pa looks at me hard, and I can hear the gears in his head clicking. You want to be a man, don't you, Miles? Yes, sir, very much. So use your wits, son. Some sleight of hand. I can't think of everything. Increasingly, time matters. I can feel it speeding up in my chest, in rhythm with my pounding heart. A flock of cliff swallows lifts off the grassy bank of our house, and my eyes fly with them into the gray light. Hey, ah, uh, says Peter. He comes up behind me and shovels my head under his arm. He smells sour, all vinegary sweat and bones. What's this fuss? So Pa has to explain again that when the sun next rises, we'll have our autographed title. Peter's grin is as wide and handsome and as full of teeth as our father's, and I smile into the mirror that they make. Tomorrow, or even tonight. Behind them, Ma seeps out of the dugout in her blue dress. She sees us gathered and runs down the powdery furrow like a tear. I think she would turn to water if she could. 
No rain on our land since the 7th of September. That midnight we got half an inch, and Pa drilled in the wheat at dawn. Most of it cooked in the ground. What came up has got only two or three leaves to a plant. Last week the stalks started turning ivory, like pieces of light. Water, Pa growls at the blue mouth of heaven, the one mouth distant enough to ignore his fists. He mutters that this weather will dry us all to tinder, lightning fodder. And he's spent every day since that last glorious hour of rainfall plowing fire breaks until he's too tired to stand. Ma's begun to talk to the shriveling sheaves in a crazy way, as if they were her thousand thirsty children. My brother pretends not to hear her. Inspection day, Pa booms at Ma's approach. He's on the train now. The inspector says who? Who thinks they're proving up? Bud says, and we are. Daniel Florisant, Bud, the Zegners. Pa leans in as if to kiss her, whispering. She unlatches her ear from his mouth. Are you crazy, Joe? The inspector is a rumor. He's smoke. I can make you a promise. No such person is ever coming out of here. How long do we have to wait before you believe that? A decade? What you want to risk? She looks over at me, and her voice gets much quieter. A silence falls over the Zegner family homestead, which Pa splits with his thundering him. You faithless woman, how can you talk like that after we have lived on this land for five years, built our home here, held out through drought and hail, through locusts? Vera, Peter is nodding along. I have to tiptoe around the half-moon of my family to get to the sod barn. As I tack up Nor, I can hear Ma worrying my father. Oh, I am not deaf. I hear you lying to our child. It's verified. Bud Stixel is no liar. I reassure Nora's quivering rump. Don't be scared. Ma is crazy. We'll find the inspector. After the defections and deaths of several settlers, the Stixels have become our closest neighbors. Their farm is 18 miles away. Bud used to work as a hired hand in Salmon, Ohio, says Pa. Came here the same year as our family, 1872. He is an eye blink away from being eligible to prove up and get his section title. One, Bud's land by the lake is in grain. Two, he's put up a claim shanty on the property, 10 feet by 20. Three, he has resided on his land for five years, held on through four shining seasons of drought. Where is God's rain? Mrs. Stixel mummers to Mom. He has raised 60 acres of emerald lucerne, two beautiful daughters, and 30 evil turkeys that have heads like scratched mosquito bites. The Stixels have met every Homestead Act requirement save one, a final strangeness, what Pa calls the wink in the bureaucrat's wall, a glass window. Farther south on the new rail lines, barbed wire and crystal lamps and pre-cut shingles fire in on the freight trains. But in the Hawks River settlement, a leaded pane is as yet an unimaginable good, almost rarer than the rain. Yet all the hawk settlers have left holes in the walls of their sod houses, squares, and ovals, where they intend to put their future windows. Some used waxed paper to cover these openings, the stixels curtained up with an oiled buffalo skin. The only time I slept at their dugout, that hide flapped all night like it was trying to talk to me. Blab, blab, blab. I know you don't belong here, I replied. I was sympathetic but there isn't any glass for that empty place. 
There's one window in this blue-gray ocean of tall grass, and it's ours. Now, Miles, both my parents preach at me continually in the same tone with which they recite the wishful Bible rules. You know the window must benefit every settler out here. We are its stewards. Paul long ago christened it the Hawks River window and swore it to any claimant in need. I sometimes think my parents use me to stimulate goodness and to remind themselves of the oath, the same way I untangle my greedy thoughts by talking to the animals, Luma and Nor, because it's easy to catch oneself wanting to hoard all the prairie's light on the hawk's violet panes. Pa says our own walls can't wear the window until we prove up. It's too precious, too fragile. So we keep it hidden in the sod cave like a diamond. Our house is a dugout in a grassy hill. I've sent three letters to my cross-eyed cousin Bailey in Blue Sink, Pennsylvania, and in each one I fail to explain our new house to his satisfaction. Cousin Bailey uses his finger to sum numbers. Once he asked me if the winged angels in heaven eat bird seed or man food like chocolate pie. The idea of a house made of sod defeats him. He writes back with questions about bedrooms and doors, closets and attics. No, Bailey, we live in one room, I reply impatiently. A ball of pure earth, not enough timber for building walls on the prairie, so we dug right into the sod. It's a cave where we now live. A grave, says Peter, a joke I don't like one bit. It's our home, although it does look like a hiccup in the earth. The floor is sod, the roof is sod, hardened by the red Nebraska sun. If it ever rains again, water will sheet in on our heads for days. The mattress sits on a raised cage of wild plum poles. My mother covers the cook stove with her mother's pilled linen tablecloth to keep the lizards and field mice and moles and rattlesnakes and yellow spiders from falling into our supper. Although she threatens to pull the cloth if we get sheeted out of another harvest and let every plaguey creature into our soup, the wheat's not getting any taller, Joe, but our boys are. They need meat, she says. Pa and Peter and I dug out the room. Pa used the breaking plow to sculpt the sod into six-inch slabs of what folks here call Nebraska marble. He stacked these into our walls, arranging each third layer in a cross-grain pattern with the grass side down. In summer, this room can get as hot as the held breath of the world. We dug a sod stable for the team of horses, the hogs, and Luma, our heat-demented cow. She's got the Hereford lightening up her red flanks, and it looks like somebody nailed her with a bucket of scalding paint. She chews slop with a look of ancient shock, her vexed eyes staring out from a white face. In truth, her eyes look a little like Ma's. My horse is Nor, who I've been riding since she was a two-year-old filly. She's jet black and broody and doesn't fit with my father's team. Up on her back, I'm taller than any man out here, taller than a pancake stack of Peter's. I saddle Nor, explain the day to her, her ears flattening at the word, Inspector. <clears throat> Behind the stalls, my father is shaking my mother like a doll. He's a rumor, huh? Then I am going to shove the fellow's arms through the coat sleeves of that rumor. He's real, and so are we Zegners. By sunrise, we'll own our home, if you can muster faith. Faith the size of one... Damn, one seed of some kind. It moves mountains. How's that part go, Vera, in the Bible? Apple or pumpkin? It's a mustard seed, Joe. Yahweh is not baking any pies. Ma's voice is shaking now, too. 
Miles is 11 years old, she reminds him. The Stixels are half a day's ride for you. Pa catches sight of me and I duck his gaze. I hope he shakes the looniness right out of her. I'm ready to ride. Ma never yells at me. But lately her voice is dreadful, even when it's cheerful, singing out of the well mouth of our house. Hoarse, so that it sounds as if she is gargling sand. She's not sick, or no sicker than anybody else. It's the dust. I hate the strain in her voice as she tries to make a happy tune for me and my brother when her yellowish eyes are sunk deep in her face, and every long note she holds shoves her ribs through her dress. She hasn't been fat for two years. I was the last Segner born in Pennsylvania. The three girls were born here and buried in a little plot under the tuft and gamma grass next to the 60 acres we have in wheat. Aside from salt thistle and the big sunflowers in July, nothing grows on top of the girls. Ma won't allow it. She's of the opinion that each of her daughters would have lived had we stayed in blue sink, long-nosed and blue-eyed like you, Miles tall and pin-thin, like the women in her family. That's how my sisters look to me, too. Glowing, taller and taller. White legs twining moonward like swords of wheat. My sisters sprout after dark. Some nights, the heat is suffocating and it wakes me. Through the hole in our kitchen where the window will go, I watch my mother kneeling in their field, weeding thistle. The three sisters sway behind her back. They stare at me with their hundred-year-old faces. They know they miss their chance to be girls. The middle one smiles at me, and her white teeth outshine the harrow. She gives me a little wave. I wonder if she knows I am her brother. When the red dawn comes, Ma's at the cook stove with her face to the leaping flame, and I'm afraid to ask her if I was dreaming. I can't tell Pa or Peter about the sisters, of course, and not Nor. She's a horse. She spooks. Lately, I won't even pray on it, because what if God tells them up in heaven that I'm terrified to meet them? Sometimes I talk to the pig, who will be butchered anyhow come Christmas Eve. I'll be fine, Ma. He'll be fine. Joe, do you want me to send Peter then? Pa says coolly. Oh, Joe, he can't. You know that. Ma chews at her lip, Luma-like. Something is going wrong with my brother. He is not reliable. A few weeks ago, when the clouds dispersed again without releasing one drop of rain, he disappeared for three days. When he wrote home, his hands were wet. Not my blood, he reassured Pa. Ma sent me on the four-mile walk to the well to haul for a bath, even though washing day wasn't until the following Wednesday, and we boys go last, after a draw for drinking, after a draw for the garden. Peter is 16, but that night he let Ma sponge the black blood off him like a child, and I almost cried like a kid myself when he splashed clean water and waves over the side of the trough. I am a little afraid of my brother. I'll go then. Now Pa's whole body draws back, like a viper in its gold burnous. I close my eyes and see the shadow of Pa's secret self throbbing along the wall of our sod barn, his head rolling to its own music and sloshing with poisons. Even in the quiet, I can hear him rattling. Joe. No, sweetheart, you're right. Pete can't go. We can't spare Miles. Who does that leave? I go or we forfeit our chance. We don't prove up. We don't own the land where our girls are buried. 
Ma leaves then to get the window. We nightly pray for everyone in Hawks to prove up the titles from the land office framed on their walls. The purple and scarlet tongue of my mother's bookmark used to move around the Bible chapters with the weather, but for the past year and a half, it's been stuck on Psalm 68. On that page, says Ma, it rains reliably. Through the empty socket in our sod, I can see her hunched in the deepest shadows. Dust whirls around the floor in little twisters, scraping her ankles raw. She bends over the glass, and a rail of vertebrae jump out. My mother is 31 years old, but the land out here paints old age into her. All day she travels this room, sweeping a floor that is already dirt, scrubbing the dinner plates into white ovals, shaking out rugs. Ma is humming a stubborn song and won't look up from the window on her lap. She polishes the glass by licking the end of her braid into a fine point and whisking it over the surface. Now the window is the only clean thing in our house. It's the size of a hanging painting with an inch border of stained glass. Two channeled lead strips run orange and jewel blue light around it. But the inner panels are the most beautiful, I think, perfectly transparent. Ma wraps it in some scatter rugs and penny burlap. Goodbye, Miles, she says simply. We fix my car, go to the horse's flank, half a dozen ropes raveling to one knot at the saddle horn. Pa hitches my leg at a painful angle, warns me not to put weight anywhere near the window. Already I am eager for the crystal risk of riding at a gallop. Then he gives me an envelope and kisses up to my ear like he does Ma's. A little bribe, he says. Tell the inspector there's more of this waiting at the Zegner place. Okay, I frown. Is there? Pa thumps Nor on the rump. When we reach the fence line, a very bad thought occurs to me. Pa, what if they don't give the window back, I call out. The stick cells, what if they try to keep it? Then you'd better run fast, because those aren't our neighbors. Those are monsters pretending to be the Stixels. Before you run, you grab that window. I might as well have asked him, what if Ma leaves us? What if Peter never gets better? I don't look back as I glide nor around the oak, the only tree for miles of prairie. The wind blows us forward, sends the last leaves raining around us, and the October clouds flashing like horseshoes. I duck underneath the branches and touch the lowermost one for luck. When I turn to salute my father, I see that he and Ma are swaying together in the stunted wheat like a dance, his big hands tight around the spindle of her waist and her face buried in his neck, her black hair water falling across the cake grime on his shirt. It's only much later that I realize Ma was sobbing. The first family of landowners we met in Nebraska were the Henry Yotherses. Five years ago, a few weeks after our migration to the Hawks River settlement, we arrived at their July picnic, one hour shy of serendipity, as Mrs. Yothers immediately announced, too late but only just to meet the inspector. I was a pipsqueak then, so I remember everything. The glowering sunset and an army of turkey red wheat mustered up by the Yothers, the whale back hump of the sod house rising above the grassy sea, and Mr. Henry Yothers himself, a new king, in possession of his title. A proven man, my pa whistled. Christ in heaven, love must glue you to him every fortnight, Ma joked to Mrs. Yothers, but in a hushed voice, surrounded as they were by what seemed like thousands of Yothers' children. Ten thousand tiny mouths feeding on one quarter section of land, and dressed for the occasion like midget undertakers in black trousers and bow ties. 
The inspector shook each of my children's hands, boasted Henry Others, congratulated each one of them on being landed gentry. He's a curious fellow, Johannes, lost an eye in the war. He wears a patch of dark green silk over the socket. It is no coincidence, I'm sure, that he's obsessed with the glass requirement. And then we got our first look at the Hawks River window. This magical glass fusing the inner room to the outside world, gracing their home with light. Back in Blue Sink, there were thousands of windows, but we only looked through them, never at them. We gasped. Remembering this, I feel queasy. Something about the big grins on everybody's faces and all that pomp, the inspector's checklist, the $10 filing fee, the U.S. president's counterfeit autograph in a loop. Through the glass, we watched Mrs. Yather slide the title into its birch frame and dutifully applauded. The general mood confused me. We were going to slave and starve and wait five years to get a piece of paper so thin. Why? To prove what? Who cares what Washington, D.C. thinks? <laughs> Congratulations, my mother beamed at Mrs. Yothers with a girlishness I'd never seen before and then embarrassed all of us by bursting into tears. Oh, boys, they proved it to them. To who? To everybody, Miles, the people back east who said they'd never make it a year, the men in Washington. The inspector will forward their papers on to the president himself. Now you come say a prayer with me. Back then, Ma never mentioned Pennsylvania except to say good riddance. We traveled west under juicy clouds that clustered like grapes. My sisters were not alive in her belly or dead under the thistle and sod. Our plow gleamed. Furniture from blue sink was still in boxes. Miles, if we're to make this place our home, we needed official, same as any claimant out here. You can't understand that? With Pa out of earshot, I said, No, ma'am, I truly cannot. The Yathers survived the grasshoppers of 1868, got hailed out twice, burned corn for fuel. They took over from the Nuna makers. You didn't know that, Miles? A bunch that fled. But the Henry Yathers family prevailed. They held on. Your heart's so stingy you cannot celebrate them. But, Ma, I wanted to say, because I guessed that a few hours earlier, before the inspection, the Yathers farm had looked no different from the proven place we'd leave with the same children running barefoot around their cave, and in the distance, the same wheat blowing, and the whole scene sliding through that window, as real or as unreal as it had ever been. At first, it is a fine morning. Nora strikes a square trot, and I goose her to a canter. Pocket gophers and kangaroo rats scramble in front of our shadow. The horn larks are singing in the grasses, plumping like vain old minister fud, black and blue sink. Soon nothing but crimson blue stem is blazing all around us. Coyotes go mousing in the meadow, and today I count none. Twice I have seen eagles back here. Three miles of dead grass pass, tickling Nora's hindquarters. Whenever she sneezes, I let go of the reins and grab a hold of the window's wrought iron frame, which feels as slender and bony as a deer's leg through the burlap case. Pa could have a million sons, and none would be a better rider. We sink into the tall grass, happy to get swallowed. But when we emerge, the sky is seamless and black, and the last yellow stitching goes dark. Something is shifting. We reach a timber belt of cottonwood, species not uncommon to Nebraska, yet I've never seen examples of such overpowering heights. Atmospheric salts spill through the air as birds scatter in fantastic numbers before us. The charge pucks the horse's huge nostrils, causes her devil's ears to cup around. 
A chill races down her bony shoulders and prickles up my neck. Between noon and one o'clock, the temperature plummets some twenty degrees. A sound I barely recognize claps in the distance. Oh, nor, I mumble into her ear, sick with hope. The black sky grows blacker still. Is it rain? I dig into her soft belly too meanly, as if the moons of my spurs could burst the clouds. And maybe they can. The miracle sounds again as if the sky has been shot and rain gushes all over us, unstoppably like blood from a body. I stick out my tongue to catch it. Over my scalp, Nora's coarse hair runs and glimmers crystal clear. Sheets of water hammer the tall grass flat, and we go whooping on, Nora and I whinnying in a duet. Rain, rain, rain. Deeper into the storm, I begin to get a picture in my mind of water flooding down the hawk's glass, rain shining the window. Oh, God, I want to see that. I whisper to Nora, it's a scene I've imagined a thousand times through all the dry years. I slow her to a stop and dismount. The red stump I use as Nora's hitching post is boiling with water. She stares at me, her great eyes running. I undo the knot, loosen the burlap. Rain soaks my trembling hands. I move the scatter rugs and expose a triangle of hawk's glass. The first drop hits with a beautiful plink, and I feel like an artist. Soon this corner of the window is jeweled with water, and I uncover the rest, floating the whole blurred world through it. I close my eyes and see my mother and father drenched outside the soddy, still dancing but joyously now, Luma in the barn rolling her twinkling eyes at real lightning, the sod crumbling from our ceiling, the house turning into a mudslide. We'll sleep outdoors and watch the wheat growing and leafing, heading out and receding. I angle the window and funnel the cold rain onto my boot toes. Feelings billow and surge in me to a phenomenal height, a green joy that I wish I could share with my mother. By now, a whole river must have fallen out of heaven and into the sod, and I don't know how long I've been standing here. Then I look up and see it's not only rainfall sweeping over the prairie. A shape slips through the blue stem just ahead of us, disappears. Mr. Florissant? But the Florissant claim is still an hour from us at a gallop, and if that shape belonged to Daniel Florissant, my God, he has changed considerably since the Easter picnic. Quickly, I rebundle and rope up the window and get astride Nor, wishing for my brother's rifle or even a pocket knife. I scan the ground for flat rocks, sticks. Hello? The black figure is moving through the switchgrass. I turn Nor around and try to give chase until I realize it's not escaping through the rain at all, but rather circling us like a hawk or the hand of a clock. Mr. Florissant, is that you? I swallow. Inspector? I wheel inside the shadows wheeling, each of us moving against the rotation of the other like cogs, the stranger occasionally walking into sight and then vanishing again. And if he is the inspector, he certainly seems in no hurry to meet me. Perhaps this is part of some extra test, as if our patience requires further proof. Inspector, I holler again over the thunder. Nor trembles, and I imagine that she too can feel the pull of this fellow's gaze, the noose he's drawing around us. I realize then I am shivering out of my clothes, my hands raw. Then a cold flake hits my nose. The rain is turning to snow. So I'll stop there. <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> Thank you.
Thank you. I never, that's the first time I've read that one. So that was, that was fun for me. So much atmosphere before he ever meets that shape. <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> Sometimes you're up here and you're like, let's speed that thing along. Um, so I would take questions if anybody had questions. Yeah. Oh, all right. I'm supposed to ask people to please come to the mic, but I will repeat this nice gentleman's question. He was asking why I, I can't stop writing about children and adolescents. Um, I think there, there's probably some kind of unconscious compulsion um, that I, I, you know, I'll, I'll try to rationalize out loud now, but I'm sure that there's just some gravity about that time. For a story like this one, I just love, um, you know, children are right on that threshold. So I think it's easier to accept a story that has kind of a supernatural element if you're seeing it through a child's eyes because they have access to many, many registers of existence. You know, they're sort of they have the private world of childhood. And then he's able to see this this basically this abuse between his parents in the same clear eyed way. And I think that there's something really moving um, about that, the kind of matter of factness of childhood, you know, when you can accept many kinds of contradictory realities. Um, so that's one, and I just think I love threshold stories and there's none more powerful, you know, I think than when you're sort of moving, exactly at that transition point where the pendulum is, is swinging between childhood and adulthood, but it it hasn't settled yet. I, I was kind of going off on the same point. Um, I kind of have noticed, um, some similarities specifically, actually, I'm glad you read that story because I noticed a similarity between that story and Swamplandia. Mm -hmm. Um, especially in the mother character and in Miles and Ava. Um, and I was wondering if that was on, if, if there's like um, a character that inspired the, the mother in each story, because I <laughs> kind of felt like um, Ma Zegner had a lot of similarities to the way Ava remembered her own mother. Yeah, no, thank you. It's funny, and I think that's sort of the interesting thing about writing, is even if you make a huge leap in time and setting, you'll discover your own preoccupations, right? It's sort of like a B-horror movie where somebody, you're like, oh my God, it's <laughs> the cab driver is the killer you thought you were escaping. Um, <laughs> or, you know, some other analogy. <laughs> I think there's something really interesting about people in these kinds of landscapes. So in Swamplandia, this family has signed on. They're running this kind of post-Edenic ramshackle mom and pop park, and they're selling it as an Eden both to the tourists and their children. And, um, yeah, I think the mother is sort of the central myth maker. She's kind of keeping it all together. And there, there's something about that forbearance. You know, I was reading, it's a while ago now, but Women's Diaries of the Westward Migration. And I, but I think everybody's mom, I mean, probably not everybody's mom, but I think that that is sort of a characteristic you'll hear people feeling, you know, gratitude for later in life, just um, the resolve of the mother, you know, that kind of stoic resolve. Thank you. Hi, um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your relationship to research, like what kind of sources you use that you're inspired by, and then whether you sort of binge all at the beginning and then set it aside, <laughs> or if you kind of go back and forth as you're writing. Yeah, I think it's, a, I think it's um, definitely there's like a binge phase, just in that obsessional way. So one of the stories was set during Meiji era Japan. And I don't even remember exactly the rabbit hole I went down where I could not, you know, you're getting your own ad hoc MA or something. <laughs> um, and I, my, with my first collection, I really did very little research. Then it was just like Google image searches of parrots. So this, is, this, is, this has been an evolution. 
but I'm finding more and more that it's nice to have kind of a bedrock of fact, you know, historical fact to innovate out of. So with this one, I was, I was reading about this period anyways um, for this novel I've been working on. And I was reading about kind of the Homestead Act. You know, I was, the Ian Fraser book actually was just fantastic, The Great Plains. Um, and then there was one, uh, you know, the Timothy Egan book that did so well. That's amazing as well, The Worst Hard Time. And then, um, so yeah, there'll be a binge phase. And then as I'm writing, often I'll need to consult some, some source again because I don't have that kind of archivist intelligence where I remember, you know, the photographic memory where I'd be able to conjure up what the Homestead Act actually required, you know. <laughs> I would invent something totally wrong that would break the spell of the story. I'd be like, are those 16 monkeys dressed? The inspector's coming, you know. <laughs> so. Thank you. Thanks. Did you teach them the song? <laughs> Hi. Um, it, in your new book, it seemed like a lot of the people were, were dealing with um, difficult economic circumstances um, or just sort of difficult circumstances in general. Um, <laughs> Is, is that something you set out to portray specifically? And, and if so, how come? Yeah, I, that happens in a few of the news stories where there, there's just these sort of really grim, you know, uh, poverty, really. You know, so it's these tenant, the daughters of tenant farmers in rural Japan, or in this case, these folks who are actually, you know, starving, in fact, really starving and um, have no food or water. Um, I don't know that I'm necessarily always consciously aware that that's how the thing will play out or that that will be such a pressure on the story. But I do think some of the fantasies in this new collection, and it's on Plandia too, they're, it's, it's that the mismatch between somebody's dream and sort of the, their own limitations or the landscape's limitations, that's the friction that the story is born out of often. So, and that's often what I'm drawn to as a reader too, where there's just a huge gulf between what's possible in some environment and what the character yearns for. So I heard you say in a recent NPR interview that your favorite thing in the world is to write. I thought, is that is Was that, that right? when I immediately like backtracked and was like, I yeah, just lied to you, sir. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, Scott, I got to yeah. be honest, that's a dirty lie. <laughs> well, it's, it, I, I thought it was a, a very sweet and inspiring um, comment to a young writer, especially. Okay. So I, my question is, I would love to just hear about your process and writing a short story. Well, it really varies, and it's like equally demented every time. I think if you, I don't, I've never like done it where I'm like, oh, I'll just do it that way from now on. I'm always like, well, that, that was a weird Jenga kind of a scenario. Um, I do, and writing is so fun. I mean, I just, I, I try not now to fall into the trap of being like, it's so excruciating. It's, it's, it's absolute joy. It's like, um, who, who gets to imagine a world? And but, but I think. The painful part of the yeah. process is that so often it doesn't work. Yeah. There'll be some premise that I'm excited about that just, no matter how, how much I work at it, it just doesn't have a third dimension or it can't sustain my interest, which I always think probably bodes, bodes ill. What do we say? Doesn't bode doesn't well. Bode. <laughs> <laughs> bodes bad for you guys. <laughs> um, you know, why dish up something that, that tastes like a saltine to you? <laughs> Um, but I, my process really varies. It used to be a little more uniform. With the stories in my first collection, St. Lucy's, it would start off as like some kind of weird what if. You know, so what if you had a pair of goggles that let you see ghosts underwater? Or what if a bunch of girls raised by wolves were re-educated by nuns? 
And then, you know, and, and if it worked at all, it just eluded my lamest and stupidest ambitions for it. You know, or I would think I was going to write something that was basically comic, and it would end up being a vehicle to think through some deeper question, or, I don't know, grief would, like, surface, like, some galleon, or it, it would change on me as I wrote. But I think stories are fun, because you can have a premise like that, and then it's sort of bounded. Um, so usually it's something I'll try to find, some kind of constraint that's going to bound the story automatically. So what if vampires, I guess it, it's still in a few of these stories that was the same process. What if vampires used lemons as some kind of analgesic so that they could recover from their bloodlust or whatever? And then the story ends up not really being about that so much yeah. at all. It's kind of like a love story about a marriage that's on the rocks. But that initial what if will get me started. Thank you. Hello. Oh, hello. <laughs> I was like, can you guys hear I'm 63, too? and you could be my granddaughter. Oh. And uh, uh, my Let's husband... Let's do the genealogy. Let's not rule it out. Well. So. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> Let's start with Kevin Bacon. <laughs> um, uh, my husband, he totally adores you. Oh. He's not here today because he's sick. He, we have been having the flu and all kinds of things oh, at home. But and, and then I say, okay, I will go and I will meet her and I will tell her how much you love her. And <laughs> he says that you are a poet, that in every sentence there is a poem. And also he says that your language, your vocabulary is exquisite. And, and he would like to ask you, and this is him talking. <laughs> As a child, at what age did you start reading? And what, what were the books that fascinated you at the age of seven, let's say? Ma'am, I want to call your husband on the phone. <laughs> this is, I wish you would come and ventriloquize him at every reading I ever do. That's, please thank him for me. That's, that's I will. Really, um, I will. So kind. Um, I hope that I started reading at six. I was probably actually like 14 or something. And I'm, <laughs> uh, I think, I, but I always, you know, in that kid way where you're, you're pretending to read long before you really can. And I wanted to be a writer basically at pace with, with when I was reading. And I, I'm trying to think, it's embarrassing because some of the books that influenced me aren't necessarily the ones you would claim now, you know, just, I mean, terrible you know, or just sort of pulpy horror books. Like Goosebumps? Yeah, well, yeah, right, like Christopher Pike, which is like the Goosebumps of my generation. <laughs> but I remember reading, um, clearly remember reading, at an age when I didn't completely grasp what I was reading, but could sort of like swim through the atmosphere, The Heart is a Lonely Hunter, which meant a lot to me because it was my mom gave me that book. So there was that strange intimacy that you can't have out loud, but just knowing that you had gone parallel through the same kind of experience. So that was one, um, you know, the stuff, the stuff that kids still adore, like a wrinkle in a wrinkle in time and a wind in the door, the weirder, the better at when I was a kid, I really, those are such, such strange books. Ray Bradbury, you know, the Martian Chronicles oh, yes. was one. He loves Ray Bradbury. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> I do too. It's funny to imagine. I mean, that man really colonized so many kid imaginations. I'm sure we, we're all having the same dreams. Oh, <laughs> it's really neat. I know. Something. Thank you guys so much. That was Karen Russell, author of Vampires in the Lemon Grove. The event was recorded on February 25th, 2013 at Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C. Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of The Store and Slate.com. For information about upcoming author events, visit politics-prose.com. 
And please let us know what you think of the program. Our email is podcasts at slate.com. For Slate, I'm Andy Bowers. <laughs>